Welcome to this week's episode of Trista's Plate Story Podcast. I'm Trista Polo from IWokeUpAwesome.com, and I am your host. Each week, we learn the story behind that vanity plate. You know, the one you saw driving down the road? What did it say? What did it mean? Why did they choose it? Welcome. I'm very excited to have this week's guest at Trista's Plate Story Podcast because of all license plates you could imagine, the license plate is podcast. I mean, it's like I'm looking right in a mirror. Welcome to Trista's Plate Story Podcast, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. So Steve Lubetkin is from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, pretty near the Philly area, right? That's right. We're about 12 miles east of Philadelphia. Great. And your license plate is podcast. You must have had that for a long time to have been able to snag that. Yeah, I guess I have. It's probably been about uh, 10 years, I would say, maybe a little bit longer. We've been podcasting for 15 years. And a couple of years into our podcasting uh, journey, I said to my wife, you know, I, I was thinking about getting a vanity plate. She said, well, how much they cost? And I said, 50 bucks. And I think I'm going to get podcast. She said, that's terrific because it'll be great for the business. Yeah. And lo and behold, it was available. New Jersey lets you buy these online. And uh, so I bought it. And then shortly after that, we bought a couple of others. We got a different car. So I got a license plate for that one, Vidcast, because I thought that the term Vidcast was going to start to become very common in the world of video podcasting. Sure. Uh, It never really took off. So it was sort of like a, "Mm, it's nice, but it's not wonderful. Uh, (laughs) Then we subsequently got another plate, Podcast 2, without the A, so it's P-O-D-C-S-T 2. And then last year, we swapped cars around, and one of the cars we retitled for my uh, older daughter, who uh, had gotten married, and she wanted to put it in her own name and with her husband and so forth. That's awesome. Now, you said you've been in podcasting for 15 years? That's right. I actually, I like to joke to people, I've been in podcasting uh, since I was a teenager, which is a lot longer than 15 years, as you can tell. <laughs> but I, when I was about uh, 15 years old, I got bitten by the radio bug. My father was an instructor at the military base near where we lived and a base where they taught all kinds of communications arts, including for the military people who were going to be on armed forces radio, teaching them how to produce radio shows in a mock-up of a radio studio. And he got me in there one afternoon to play with the control board and learn how to uh, operate a radio station. And man, I was hooked. And I went home and I started making pretend radio shows in my parents' basement with a reel-to-reel tape recorder and a turntable and playing back these pretend radio shows for my friend and I while we played chess together. There was no way back in the (laughs) 1970s to distribute a radio show like that. Um, And so lo and behold, we get to the podcasting era and I'm still making pretend radio shows in the basement. And the difference (laughs) is that I can now actually sell them to people and uh, produce them for clients and, and distribute them over the internet. Yeah. I mean, what are you like the first podcast ever to go out? 15 years. When did podcasting start? Was it 15 years ago or is it earlier than that? It's it's about that time. Historically, and I go back to the early days of the internet and technology. And in fact, um, in the dark ages of 1977, (laughs) <laughs> um, I was a, a rock and roll music writer for a local newspaper in New Jersey. In in that year, people who are listening who are Grateful Dead fans may remember uh, September 3rd, 1977 was a legendary Grateful Dead concert. It was one of the last of the 
Woodstock era rock and roll concerts with over 100,000 people who congregated in a central New Jersey town called English Town for this concert that included performances by the New Riders of the Purple Sage and the Marshall Tucker Band, followed by the Grateful Dead. So it was a big deal in the, in the municipality. I was sent with another reporter to cover the concert, and we used what was then a portable computer that was about three times the size of the screen and yeah. about 60 or 70 pounds, which we carried to this concert. And they dropped us by helicopter at the venue. And then we realized we had to not only find a place to plug it into AC power because it didn't work on batteries, but there also had to be a telephone. Goodness. <laughs> there was no internet then, and we had to file our stories by plugging into the phone line. Oh, we wow. That. But it was, uh, it was actually the first uh, rock concert that was covered using a portable computer of some sort, as far as I can tell. I've never seen any other reference to that kind of thing. So, you know, I go back that far. If you come a little bit further forward in the early days of the internet, people started hanging audio files off of websites in the mid-1990s. And at that time, I was working for a financial services firm on Wall Street, and we were producing conference calls for investors to listen to where they could hear the financial analysts who our firm employed talking about the rationale for why they rated companies in different ways. And we started producing those conference calls as uh, web-streamed audio and then putting the web-streamed audio up on the website for people to listen to the replay. That was in like 1995. So we were doing it a lot fairly early on. It didn't really become podcasting until around 2003, 2004, when a fellow from MTV named Adam Curry became uh, very popular. He was one of the first VJs on MTV. I know, uh, I remember him. <laughs> okay, so, so you and some of your listeners may remember that when MTV actually played music videos. And Curry was an early adopter of the internet, and he uh, came up with the idea of using, building a website for MTV. And he, you know, I imagine the conversation went something like this, you know, long-haired MTV VJ, Adam Curry goes to the suits at MTV at HBO corporate or wherever it was and says, hey, we should have this thing called a website and I can put up playlists and I can put up stuff about bands and concerts and things. And they said, you know, just go back and play some music, you know, leave us alone. And Adam went out and he bought the domain MTV.com. Wow. And he started, and he started the website. He did it himself and it became very popular. And then a couple of years went by. And there was a, a landmark case in Chicago where someone had purchased the domain name McDonald's.com. Okay. That wasn't the burger chain. And the burger chain sued. And in the landmark decision, the court said, you can't cyber squat was the term that was used, cyber squatting. You can't buy someone's domain name if, if they have a trademark on the name that you're basing it on. And so MTV at that point realized that they didn't own MTV.com. And... Uh, <laughs> The upshot was that Curry ended up leaving MTV right around that time, and MTV got the website. But Curry partnered with a guy named Dave Weiner, who was an internet technology guy who had invented something called RSS, really simple syndication, which is the way that um, a lot of internet content is, even today, still distributed to people. You get an alert in a RSS reader if something new comes along that you're interested in. But what uh, Curry and Weiner came up with was a way to point those RSS readers to content like audio and video without actually 
pushing the audio and video files out over the internet. One of the early uh, companies that tried to do this was a company called Pointcast, which they gave away a piece of software you put on your computer and you could customize it to deliver news to you, including video and audio. The problem was every client, every piece of software that was distributed pulled down its own separate blob of rich content of audio and video. And once it started hitting corporate firewalls and they realized how much traffic was hitting them, they started blocking it and the, the business model went away because mm. Pointcast couldn't sell advertising if they couldn't get into the corporate environment right. and get to these multiple sites. So that, that idea of pushing the content to each individual was, was really not gonna work. What RSS does is it points you to a location where the file resides. So it doesn't have to send you the file, it's just sending you basically the URL for the podcast, sending you the, the link. And that became the way that people distribute. And so if you talk to purists about the definition of a podcast, a podcast is an audio or today a video file that is distributed using RSS technology. Now, for the vast majority of people, that really is irrelevant because most people get their podcasts from a podcast service like iTunes, or right. now it's called Apple or Podcasts. App. Right. or Google Podcasts, or an app, or from the website of the podcast producer. So, I have to say you have earned the right to have podcast as your license plate, the word right. podcast, with your, your history lesson. That was very interesting. I didn't know a lot of that, and I had no idea Adam Curry, of all people, was kind of the starter of the podcast era that we're in now. That's pretty cool. He's referred to as the podfather by a lot of people. All right. All right. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, see, I'm part of this whole culture and I wasn't aware of the start of it. So now I have a more of an appreciation of it, which is great. And so when you first started on podcasting, what kinds of things did you do? Actually, I became interested in it when I was exiting from my corporate career. I spent about 30 years working in corporate public relations jobs. And during that time, because my prior to going into corporate PR, I had worked as a journalist, both as a print journalist and as a broadcast journalist on the radio, and loved being on the radio. But even today, it's very difficult to make a living being on the radio. And so, you know, I went into corporate PR and spent you know all those years but i always kept my interest in you know trying to meet the media where they are and so as a pr person i was always trying to produce audio and video clips that i could merchandise to journalists i was trying to pitch stories to and so you know when i exited from the corporate world after uh, surviving a couple of large bank mergers and then ending up on the outside looking this is around 2004 2005 as luck would have it, my wife had heard an early feature on NPR about podcasting and said, you know, with your radio background, you should really be looking into this podcasting thing. I think that's where you're going to have more success. And I listened to the story, and then I started listening to some of the early podcasts. And what I heard reminded me a lot of how I sounded and how my friends sounded when we were doing college radio. And yes. When you first start college radio, people who've done it will recognize this. You're very smitten with the idea that you're on the radio and yeah. you want to, you're enthusiastic. You want to talk about the microphone you're using. You want to talk about the mixing board. <laughs> you want to talk about who's in the studio with you. And the reality is nobody cares. Yeah. They just don't care about that stuff. Play the music, you know, tell me what time it is. Give me the weather. And what I was hearing was a lot of 
what sounded very amateurish, but it, but the light bulb went off in my head and said, this could be a really great way for corporations and organizations to distribute their content in an easy to digest format, like a radio show, but it has to sound good. It, ha it, it doesn't have to sound completely professional, but it has to sound a lot more like NPR or the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or another professional outlet than like an amateur night production. And so, you know, my, my thing was to learn how to produce digital audio, because I grew up in an analog world. You know, I grew up when we made recordings on magnetic tape. And splicing edited, the tape, yep. Splicing the tape with a <laughs> razor blade and a grease pencil. Yep, and, yep. And if you make the edit in the wrong place, you're, you're cooked. Yes. Because you didn't have the ability to make copies easily or to go back. So, so I had to learn the digital tools and I had to acquire some digital tools. And that meant, you know, digital audio recorders and, you know, better microphones. I had some mics, but not, not the best. And then, you know, as time went on, I needed more and more gear. And after a couple of years, people started asking for video. And I had been a photographer. My dad was a photography instructor and taught me some of what he knew. Um, you know, I had to go back and, and start doing video because people wanted video. So we added video to the mix. And over the years, we've upgraded and upgraded. And about five years ago, my son-in-law built me a, a TV production studio in the basement of my house, where, which is where I'm sitting today. Um, and, and now I can produce live stream videos from bringing together guests from anywhere in the world. We do that for several clients now, you know, multiple guests and switch it like a regular broadcast a cable TV interview show with multiple heads on the screen. And as you can see, I've got the uh, visuals on the screen with my reference points. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, we've just grown over the years. And, and podcasting has been a really useful tool for our clients in promoting their expertise because it gives people an opportunity to listen to the actual thought leaders, the actual subject matter experts talking about the, the topic that's important to them and to their clients. Great. And so do you have any shows you personally put out there or are you mostly working for other people producing their podcasts? Mostly for other people, but I do have a couple of shows that I do uh, for my own enjoyment. I have a show that I do, which has the obnoxiously egotistical name Lubetkin on Communications, which is a podcast where I interview people in journalism and uh, communications public relations folks about their work, a show about podcasting. There are plenty of podcasts about podcasts. <laughs> but, you know, conversations with people like uh, there's a fellow named Charlie Craddeville who got some national attention a couple of uh, maybe last year. He is a, a journalist and community activist in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He was up in the north central part of the state. And he got himself thrown out of a speech by the woman from the White House press corps, April, um, I'm forgetting her last name, the uh, woman who covers the White House for uh, urban, urban uh, radio news. Can't think of her last name. Yeah. Uh, but he got thrown out of the speech and he kept his camera rolling while he was being thrown out by the security people. And he got some attention for that. So we interviewed him and he's done some great work in terms of investigative journalism at a very hyper local level. And we've interviewed some other people. I did a uh, video interview with James Steele, the former Philadelphia Inquirer reporter and a Pulitzer Prize winner who with his uh, partner, Don Barlett, has just reissued a book they wrote in the 90s called America, What Went Wrong? And the Crisis Deepens is the, the subtitle of the new version. Mm. 
adapted for where we are today with the pandemic and the economic crisis that we're facing. So we've had some interesting people. And then the other one I do is, and that one sort of fits that bill, is um, uh, a podcast on books and authors, where I interview huh. authors of uh, different kinds of books and also musical artists. And that's especially nice when we have an independent artist where we can play their music because most podcasters know it's really hard to get permission to play copyrighted music during yeah. a podcast. And one of the reasons why I can't do the pretend radio shows that I did as a kid is because they would get dinged if I tried For to sure. And I'd, I'd be hearing from somebody's lawyer. I actually had a, a guest on the Plate Story podcast that's an independent artist. Mm -hmm. And they were fine with me sharing snippets. I didn't, I said, I'm not going to do full songs just for the sake of time as well. But they said, I'll use whatever you want. You know, let us know if you need better quality files. They were great about it because they, they just love connecting with their fans and they love what they do. But well, it's interesting. You know, it's, a, it, it's, it's an interesting outgrowth of the independent music movement. And really, this goes back to the Grateful Dead, to be honest with you. Back in the early 70s, the Dead were one of the first groups and, and still today, the, the successor group to the Dead. One of the only groups that allows fans to and encourages fans to come and tape their music. At the concert, they they actually started in the in the 60s. I think the Dead would rope off a section in front of the stage. They called it the tapers section, and people would go there with their portable recording equipment and record the concerts. Which is why, out of I think there are 2,700 or so Grateful Dead live concerts, almost all of them are available as a recording, including the one that I covered in 1977. And they're good quality recordings for the most part. Many of them are even recordings made directly from the soundboard of the engineers at the concert. So there's some really good content out there. And they were one of the only ones to understand that they could market themselves in that way. A lot of other groups are starting to do it, independent artists usually, because the record companies really don't like that. So you do corporate stuff as well. You have a, a turnkey podcast production company, right? That's correct. And, and what we found is, you know, companies want to do podcasting, but they don't want to commit the resources to funding a podcasting production operation generally. And it doesn't make sense for most companies to do that. The media companies like, you know, radio and television uh, production companies, it makes sense because all they have to do is just push another button for a different kind of output. But for a, a regular company in say the financial services or the insurance industry, it, it may not make sense for them to have a full-time staffer. And what they tend to find out, they tend to assign the podcasting duties to someone as a second responsibility. And it's often not the communications people who get that responsibility. It's often right. the IT people. It's the people who are taking care yeah. of the computers in the company. <laughs> Because they're the ones who, who tend to be more interested in gadgetry and trends and things. And podcasting and video tend to be more closely associated with the internet than with communications and broadcasting for some reason. And so what happens is they'll, they'll assign it to an IT person. They'll even give them budget money to go out and buy some really nice equipment, cameras, lights, you know, digital recorders, things like that. And they'll go around and record interviews and content and stuff. And then when they go back to their desk to sit down and, and produce it and do the post-production work, they get pulled away for other duties and it ends up not getting done. And so having an outside turnkey production company like mine enables the company to just say, we, you know, here's the podcast, here are the people who are going to be on it. You do the recording, edit it, finish it, get, give it to us. And, you know, 
we'll react to it and we'll make some edits and we'll be done. And what they get back is, you know, a fully finished program that they can then use their channels to distribute. We can help them with that if they need to, but more and more companies already have channels in place that they can use to distribute it. So we just turn over the file to them and they go off and, and distribute their podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when we uh, talked before, you have a pretty tricked out studio. Would you mind for the video watchers showing off your studio? Turn this on. is video only content. This is not going to be part of the audio part. So if you want to oh, see the studio, you got to see the video. Now we are coming in for a landing here, but I know you, I wanted to change the topic a little bit. You said when we talked before that you have some very weird stories in your family tree or into genealogy and that kind of thing. So I did not want to wrap up until we had a little chat about that. So tell me about that. Oh gosh. Well, there, there are a couple, I guess. One of them is <clears throat> there's a, a first cousin three generations back from me, so his first cousin thrice removed, who was, who was what, what at that time they called a confirmed bachelor. And uh, this, this cousin, Aaron was his name, he went by the name Archie, was an interior decorator in New York. And as I began researching him, it became very obvious that every time he showed up in the census, he showed up with a, another fellow living as a lodger in his apartment. And over the years, it was very clear that they were together as a couple. They were in a committed relationship for almost 40 years. And Wow. Um, Before that fellow, was even discussed. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fellow that he was involved with was a fairly prominent entertainment lawyer in New York City who threw parties and represented very glamorous artists in the 20s and 30s and 40s and they were they were quite successful and quite wealthy and they traveled the world and when when the partner died the partner who had, again had been a lawyer made the terrible mistake of writing his own will and he wrote it wrong and he ended up disinheriting without intending to yeah uh, my cousin oh wow and the bank that was uh, one of the trustees for the estate actually went to court to get a decision. And the court ruled, yes, he wrote it wrong and he shouldn't have. And the money ended up going to a foundation that still exists today and provides grant money for promising young classical musicians. Wow. And you know, I took all this information and I sent it to the foundation and said, you know, I don't want to cause anybody any trouble or prom problems. <laughs> right. with I've got this information and I would love to know more about this fellow. And they were amazed at what we had discovered. There were a number of references to them in, you know, various publications, um, you know, discrete references. And they said, you know, more than we do. All we know is that we've got this pile of money that we give out in grants. But they did put me in touch with, with the fellow's, I guess, niece, who had some correspondence and some photos. I mean, these guys went all over the world. They, they were doing like world tours and bucket list trips long before anybody was doing that kind of stuff. They went to India and rode on elephants. They went to Thailand. They went to just all kinds of exotic places. Wow. So they had a very interesting life together. So that was, you know, probably the, the most curious one that I found. We also had another. They started, as far as I can tell, you know, the, the, the census records go quite a ways, but the first evidence I could find of them together was around 1920. Wow. So they, they were together from around 1920 through the uh, mid-50s when, when both of them passed. 
Wow. So, you know, really just an interesting story, an interesting yeah. sideline. You know, it's kind of, it's one of those things I would love to research if I had the, the funds and the ability to sit in the library because a lot of the records are probably not digitized. Sure. I have to plow through a lot of uh, paper records to, to mm -hmm. do any kind of serious research. That so. could be a fun podcast. There's a podcast I saw recently where they talk about the relationships between women. So like a prominent woman and then a woman that was important in their life somehow, like maybe a family member or whatever. And you never hear about that other person, but they were a very significant part of why the prominent one came to be so prominent. So I always find those stories interesting, the things that are underneath the public information. Sure. Absolutely. Yes, that's fun. That's, what that's a good one. That's what adds, adds, adds a, a greater understanding to, you know, how we got to where we are. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, it's been so fun having you on. I always like to turn the tables and see if you have a question for me. So is there a question you'd like to ask me before we wrap up? What was the, the, the strangest vanity plate that you have encountered so far? Hmm. You know, I see so many. I'll tell you one of my favorites that is strange. It's I-T-H-5. And it's on a Jeep. And the frame, the, the license plate frame around it is mm -hmm. upside down and says happens at the bottom. And so if you look yeah, at the plate, right, right, upside down, right? And right. I'm like, oh my God, that's so clever and odd and not at all what I expected. And that's to, that's to skirt the, the rules against, you know, obscenities on license plates. Absolutely. Thursday, there was, there was, a, there was a, a clergyman whose last name was Hooker. And he wanted to get his last name on his license plate. And they rejected him several times. Yeah. want to put Hooker on the license plate. I, I do something called plate spotting, where when I have a few extra minutes, I'll drive around a parking lot looking for vanity license plates, take pictures of them. If it's not a pandemic, I'll leave them a postcard for them to be on the show if they'd like. Good idea. Hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And one of them I saw recently, it was in a parking lot of a grocery store near where I live, and it was AK4D7, AK47. Oh, no. And I thought, I wonder if the D is in there so it could pass the yeah. auto-generated. And it was interesting that they got away with that plate. And, but it's, it, it creates a reaction, <laughs> for sure. Okay. Yeah. I, was in the, I, I was on my way to meet my wife for lunch one day. And in the parking lot, there was a license plate that was a Wicked Wizard. Mm. Without, without a lot of the vowels. But it yes. was obviously Wicked Wizard. So I took a picture of it and I walked... 10 feet, and there was another car park that was Wicked Witch. Mm. They go together? Yeah, it was a husband and wife. Oh, it was. Well, certainly, you know, meeting for lunch just like we were, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's a good combination. I, I, I have Old Witch. I found that one in a parking lot recently. Okay. Old Witch. There's also a car driving around New Jersey with the license plate Covert Op. <laughs> I, I just yeah. find those so funny. A friend of mine sent me a New Jersey plate, and the plate says, I'm famous. And I'm like, if you are famous, you don't need a plate to tell people. Plus, it's this beater car. So <laughs> clearly, it's someone who's famous in the future in their, you know, goals and dreams. But I, I find those irony plates to be particularly interesting. So it sounds like you're into license plates, not just on your own car, but 
like I am, you kind of tend to collect them. Oh yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I was, I was looking for these pictures today before we got on the, on the air and I, I found several of the others that I had collected that I had forgotten about. Oh, nice. I, I have a flicker feed of uh, vanity plates and I'm going to add some of them to it. And make sure. sure I'll well, send you, you a yeah, I was going to say, if you ever have any that um, you think I might enjoy, definitely send them along. They may end up on my Instagram and Facebook feed. I definitely have people send me pictures they see. And I always say, make sure you're safe. Don't do it while you're driving. It's so tempting. Driving behind somebody and you want to catch that plate. Yep. Just be yep. safe. Do it at a light. or I, don't, I never do that. Yeah, yeah. That's advice for everyone. Because <laughs> it's tempting. I know it is. I've been there. Like those commercials that, you know, they want you to go on a, on a trip somewhere and they show somebody cliff diving in Hawaii and it says, do not attempt. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Do not attempt. It's been so fun having you on. I really great. appreciate you being here, Steve. Thanks for joining me and sharing your plate story. Do you have any last words or last advice from you to an independent like myself? I would just say keep podcasting and, you know, if you think it's going to help you buy the book. It's thebusinessofpodcasting.com is the website. And I bet that's a great tool for anyone who has a podcast or is thinking of having a podcast or even getting into the production side. So I'm glad you shared that. I hope you have a great rest of your day and I'll see you out there on the road. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Trista's Plate Story Podcast. Please subscribe to Trista's Plate Story Podcast to get the story behind all those vanity plates driving with you on the road. And if you would like to nominate the owner of a license plate, including you, or visit any of our partners and sponsors, come and see us at platestory.com. That's P-L number eight story.com and give us the details. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop a review and give us a share. I'm Trista Polo wishing you well on the road to your next adventure.